Sometimes this world makes no sense to me. I'm torn between what others want and what is me. It seems a song is what the world demands, but how can I sing in this strange land? Until I die, I'll sing God's song, living in this Babylon, always looking for the shore of the world that I was made for. The world where the weak are finally strong and the righteous are known for righting wrongs. I want to see this earth start shaking, being impacted by a powerful generation that is finally waking up inside. And on the final day when I die, I want to hold my head up high. I want to look God himself in the eye and tell him that I tried. Transit Church. Thanks for joining us. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, if you're logging in with us for the first time, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, today we're going to be continuing our series looking at the book of Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9 today. So feel free to open up your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 9. And the theme that we've been, if you've been with us for the past couple months that we've gone through Daniel, you know that the sermon series theme is faithfulness in exile, where we're asking the question, how do we stay faithful to our Lord while living in a foreign land, a foreign land that often, like a raging river, is doing everything it can to get us off of the rock of Jesus Christ and instead flow downstream with the current of culture. And if we were to look at the life of Daniel, who's in his 80s at this point in the text and has been faithful to Yahweh his entire life while in exile, if we were to ask, hey, what's his secret sauce? How did he make it all of those years faithful to Yahweh? It would be uh, really easy for us to idolize Daniel and say, well, of course, it was his strength to, to swim against the current of, 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 of the culture he was in, or it was his ingenuity to kind of dance around the currents of that culture. But I would say that Daniel's strength and genius was, uh, was recognizing simply that he wasn't a strong genius, but that his only shot at remaining faithful to Yahweh was to cling to his rock and his redeemer, holding fast to him in prayer like a drowning man clings to a rock that is standing firm in the midst of a raging river. And so today in our text, we have one of the longest recorded prayers in the Bible where we get a, a glimpse of kind of looking over the shoulder of Daniel and seeing what Daniel does best, and that's cling to the Lord in prayer. So with that said, we're going to be talking about prayer today. We have a lot of ground to cover as usual, and so uh, a fitting way to start would be for me to just start off by praying. So please join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful Lord Jesus, that you went to great lengths to give us the gift of prayer, to tear the veil in half so we can enter the Holy of Holies with confidence because we're covered by the blood of the Lamb and we can have fellowship. We can be reconciled to you forever. So thank you for that beautiful reality, Lord Jesus. And thank you for your word that teaches us how to, how to pray, what it looks like to pursue you with everything we have in prayer. Thank you for Daniel's testimony and how you were faithful to him and he was faithful to you and the beautiful blessing that is for us to read about in Daniel 9 in your word, Lord Jesus. So Holy Spirit, have your way with your word, with your people this morning, and I pray, Jesus, that you would increase, you would be magnified in our hearts, and I would decrease and be forgotten up here. And we pray all of this in your beautiful, majestic name, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. All right, Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 1 
2.2. Here we go. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations in Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So stop right there. The context of our passage is now the Medo-Persian Empire has conquered Babylon, Darius is king, and the year is 539 B.C. So 11 years have passed since the vision uh, that, that Daniel received in Daniel 8 that we looked at last week. And at this point in Daniel's life, my man is in his 80s, and I imagine that Daniel here is weary, he is worn out, and, and he's ready to go home. And so what we see in verse 2 is that Daniel's having a Bible study. He's, he's reading the word of the Lord given to, the, given to Jeremiah the prophet, and what he, as he's reading Jeremiah's uh, a testimony of, of what the Lord had revealed to Jeremiah. What he, when, he's reve- when he's reading that, what he realizes is that the exile had an expiration date. And that expiration date was 70 years. And maybe Daniel was reading Jeremiah uh, chapter 29 and reading these couple verses here when it says this in Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So Daniel reads this, he counts up the decades he's been in exile, and he realizes that the restoration of God's people to God's place, God's city, Jerusalem, is around the corner. And that actually happened uh, roughly a year later in 538 BC when Cyrus issues the decree that the exiles can return home. And so what's interesting here, what we're going to pay attention to the rest of the sermon is how does Daniel respond to the word of God? here in Jeremiah. And what's interesting is this, as he's reading most likely Jeremiah 29, he sees that the Lord has a certain part. The Lord says, I'm going to bring you back to the land after seven years. I'm going to restore to you. I'm going to gather you from all the nations and bring you back to Jerusalem. But then he says, that's the Lord's part. But then Daniel reads in verse 12 through 13, what's, what's the exile's part? What's, what's their role in this? And in verse 12 and 13, we see that, we see the Lord tell him this, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So Daniel says, okay, got it. That's my part. That's my role is to seek you with everything I have. You're going to return us, and yet you want the exiles to zealously pursue you. So that's what I'm going to do, and that's what we see Daniel do in his text. And so the first point of my talk is this. This is kind of like point zero, the foundation of everything I'm going to say, is that what we see Daniel do in response to God's word is, listen, what we learn about prayer is this, is that prayer is the pursuit of God, not the pursuit of prayer. Prayer is the pursuit of God himself, not the pursuit of prayer. Look at verse 3. Daniel says, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him, seeking God by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. What immediately sticks out to me is how Daniel describes prayer. He says, I turn my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Note what Daniel doesn't say. Daniel does not say, I turn my face to prayer. I turn my face to fasting. I turn my face to sackcloth and ashes. No, all of that, 
All of that was Daniel simply giving his Lord, whom he has loved and served and abided with for 80 years of his life. It's him saying, he's giving the Lord a heads up and he's saying, hey, your servant Daniel is coming to you with absolutely every fiber of my being. Sackcloth, ashes, fasting. I'm, 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 I'm coming at you with everything I got, Lord. And tragically, today, we view prayer like an art to be mastered, right? We view prayer like an art to be mastered rather than a means uh, of the far greater end of deepening our fellowship with the living God. And so when Jen and I were dating until we got married, we were long distance. And so by God's grace, we had FaceTime, right? And so we would chat for like three hours, almost like every day, because we were just so in love, right? And we'd be like, no, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you, for like hours, right? But maybe that describes your dating relationship as well, but, uh, or maybe not. Anyways, listen, I did not love FaceTime, right? I didn't FaceTime with anybody else in that season. There was one person I FaceTime with. And listen, it was the person on the other end of FaceTime. When Jen wasn't on the other end of the line, I didn't try to master the art of FaceTime and hold up a phone with nobody on the other end and say, I got to master the art of FaceTime because that's what good uh, boyfriends do. So should I FaceTime with my face on the ground, standing up in a prayer closet, walking around the neighborhood? How should I FaceTime? No, that wasn't it. It was my love for the person on the other end of, uh, of the phone that made me uh, go to FaceTime to talk to them. It was my love that drove me to FaceTime. And it's the same for us. It's got to be our love that drives us to, to God through prayer, not prayer in and of itself. Like it's some art to be mastered so we can become Christian, you know, Jedi masters and master the art of prayer. That's not what it's about. It's about love and affection and adoration for our God. And that's what we know about Daniel. Daniel had a love for God. Daniel had a passion for God. Daniel had a delight in God, not in prayer. That's why we see him praying three times a day is because he loved God. And he wanted to talk to him through prayer. And so listen, if you don't hear anything else I say, please listen to this. The application uh, for today's sermon is not, okay, Nick's telling me I need to go pray more. That's not the application. The application is let's go seek after the living God who is sought after us and his son and is called upon us by name through his son dying and rising to new life for us. He is called upon us. Let us return to the God who is sought after us zealously. Now let's respond with the same devotion, the same zealously, pursuing God through prayer. That's the response, not trying to become prayer experts, but, but loving God, seeking God, pursuing God. And Christians, this is why we exist. This is the chief end of our lives. John Piper is, is, is famous, is noted for saying that the chief end of your life is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And if we're looking at the, what Daniel says here when he describes prayer, he says, I turn my face to the Lord in prayer. What he's doing there, he's saying, Lord, you are all satisfying. You are my treasure. I'm turning my face away from all these other things that are, that are, that are vying for my affections and my delight. And I'm turning them, turning my face away from all that to you because you are my prize. You are my treasure. You are who holds my heart. And I want to spend time with you. That's what prayer is. We were created for that. And the, the danger we have is often we, we try to emphasize, you know, don't seek after God. That's legalism and all that stuff. And there might be a, an actual danger there of not resting in the finished work of Christ who said it is finished on the cross. But, but all of that, right, was a means to reconcile us back to God so we can have fellowship. We can abide with him. Jesus says in John 15 that we abide, right? Abide with him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And so he's gone to great lengths to make prayer possible for us. And the secret to Daniel's faithfulness was his delight in the Lord through prayer. And the secret to your faithfulness and is our affections. 
being, being welling up for God so that, so that all the delights, the false delights of this culture that are calling our names pale in comparison to the, the joy we have and our Savior knowing our sweet fellowship with him. And so first thing we see is prayer is a pursuit of God himself. And then the second thing we see is that prayer is not just um, supplication. Often we think prayer is just asking God for things. But what we see in our text is that prayer is not just supplication, but it's adoration. It's praising God. Look at verse 4. And Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice Daniel does does not begin his prayer with a long list of complaints before God, right? As someone who is ripped from his homeland as a teenager and has spent decades in exile and has gone through crazy situations, he doesn't go to God and say, here's another reason you've done me wrong. Here's another indictment against you, God. You owe me big time, man. You better show up. He doesn't start his prayer like that. The first thing that cracks out of his mouth, almost like it's welling up and then it cracks out of his mouth, is praise thanksgiving, adoration to his Lord. And the reason why is because his purpose in prayer was, was seeking God, not gifts that God can give. His prayer life wasn't transactional, but it was relational. And what we see with praise, a simple definition of, of praise for the intents of this, uh, this sermon, is inner love being made audible. And that's what we see with Daniel. He begins this, this prayer, just this inner love is welling up, boom, cracks out of his mouth, saying, I love you, God. This is who you are. You're faithful. You're God of steadfast love. You're great. You're awesome. And here's all that you've done for us. You keep your promises even to a people who are unfaithful to you. And, and starting, church, starting our prayers with adoration, it changes everything. Because one, it reminds our soul of who we are talking to, right? It's a, it's a beautiful reminder of this is who we have access to. Saying that we're talking to the eternal, thrice holy, all-powerful, sovereign king, of kings. And what this does is it increases our faith and changes our prayers from small or non-existent prayers to big and bountiful prayers, right? When we understand we have a massively big God who's done amazing things and has promised to do amazing things, it'll change, it'll, it'll, it'll you know, change our, our small, uh, uh, you know, dinky, fun-sized prayers to big, God-sized prayers that actually honor him and who he is and, and what he's capable of doing, right? But see, that's not it. When we start our prayers, that's the first thing we see, but the second thing, when we start our prayers with adoration, the second thing it does is it reminds our souls of who we, not just who we are talking to, but who we get to talk to. See, that's the beautiful thing of starting with praise and adoration is we're saying, wait, 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 you're the king of the universe and yet you first called me, you've invited me to talk to you on the regular? That's insane. You first called me, you invite me to talk to me and you hear and you listen and you answer. Who am I? I'm not worthy to be called to your table and yet you consistently invite me to come and abide with you, come and talk to you through prayer. It's beautiful. It, remi it reminds our souls that we have the greatest connection in the universe. I am talking to the great I am, and the madness of it all is the great I am has invited me to, <clears throat> excuse me, to his table. And so application here before we transition to our third point is this, is that even in the midst of our unanswered prayers and confusion, although I would argue that our prayers often don't go unanswered, we just don't get the answer we want, but even still, in the midst of our unanswered prayers and confusion, listen, when we go to the Lord in prayer, we can enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise because he's made it possible for us to enter his courts in the first place. Entering his courts covered by the precious blood of Jesus is enough to praise him for all of eternity, that he's made a way, the veil is torn, he's made a way for us to enter his courts, so it doesn't matter if we have a long list of unanswered prayers, the very fact that we can go to him in prayer is, a, is, is, is reason for us to enter his courts with praise. 
and thanksgiving. And third thing we see, I've uh, got a lot, of, a lot of ground to cover here, so we've got to keep going. The third thing we see is prayer is confession before God. Look at these next, fi- these next 10 verses, 5 through 15. This is what Daniel says. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by the servants uh, the prophets all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses the servant of God have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing us a great calamity for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like was done against Jerusalem as it is written in the law of Moses all this calamity has come upon us yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. I love that. He is righteous in all the works that he has done. He has done us no wrong in this exile. And we have not obeyed his voice. Verse 15, and now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned. We have done wickedly. What sticks out across these 10 uh, verses, remarkably so, is Daniel's brutal honesty with God. He doesn't minimize sin. He sees sin the way God sees sin. There's no glossing over of sin and transgression. There is no, there's none of this. Well, hey, God, that's not really, I mean, come on, what we did, that's not really a big deal. Everybody else in the culture around us was doing it. Everyone else around us was doing it. Why is it that big of a deal? This exile, actually, I think, God, was a, was a tad bit of an overreaction, right? If I was in your shoes, I wouldn't have done that. He doesn't do that, right? He actually mourns. He's grieving. He's fasting. He's, he's, got, he's got ashes all over him. He's wearing sackcloth, and he's, he's confessing. He's crying out, saying, we have, we have acted treacherously against our faithful God. He's saying, we've sinned. I look, at, I look at all the, the ways he talks about the ways that the people of God have, have turned against God, sinned, act, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned from you, didn't listen to your voice, committed treachery against you, and refused to obey your voice. And so what he's doing here, Daniel is corporately confessing the sins of the people of God that led to this exile. And, and what were those sins? Uh, uh, to, to a helpful reminder is this, is the sins of the people of God were that they didn't zealously seek after, after God, but instead zealously sought after demonic pagan gods. And that's the, that's the story of our lives, is that we were, we were created as worshipers. We were created to worship. So listen, our zealous pursuit never turns off. We're always, at all times, always zealously pursuing something or someone to give us ultimate satisfaction. It's either God or we're zealously pursuing idols, right? Those are our two options. We never turn off the zealous pursuit of worship. And so uh, Israel and Judah did some, some remarkably wicked things. And as we just read in 2 Kings in our CBR, what we saw was that the kings of Judah established shrines to Baal and Asherah in the temple of God. And not only that, the kings of the people of God led the people of God to to, to worship Moloch as well. And the way you worship him is you burn your kids in fire, burn them alive in fire. And not only that, when, the, when God sent prophets 
In God's grace to his people, he sent prophets to call them to repentance, saying, listen, exile is coming, but it doesn't have to happen if you repent. What did they do to the prophets? They slaughtered. They killed the prophets of God, and hence the exile. And what we see here, you might be asking, why did God punish his people via exile to pagan Babylon? Well, I think it's just what we see in Romans 1. It's God giving, uh, giving us up to what our hearts are zealously pursuing. I think in a way it's God saying this. Listen, if you want to chase after the pagan gods of pagan nations, listen, here's a round trip, all expenses paid, 70-year expedition to the Disney world of pagan idolatry, a.k.a. Babylon. There you go. Here's a Disney world of pagan worship in Babylon, all expense trip uh, paid, 70 years you get to spend over there. But listen, you're not going to worship those demonic pagan entities in my house. And so if you want to worship them, go to Babylon. And by the way, it's all, it's all paid for. There you go. Boom. And uh, the craziest reality is, is not God's just you know, judgment of his people. The craziest reality is that even despite of his people's abominations, God still promised redemption to them. Why is that? Well, when we looked at verse 4, we saw that God is a great, awesome, merciful, covenant-keeping God of steadfast love who is faithful. He's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his people, even in spite of their continual turning away from God. In spite of their unfaithfulness to God, what we see is God is faithful to his word and to us. And so the truth of the matter is this in regards to confession and repentance. Listen, it is first and foremost God's desire for us to be reconciled to him that makes confession and repentance even possible for us. Do we understand that? See, often we just focus on confession and repentance, on our, looking at you know, what, what's our role, and we forget that this is only possible because God is a God of mercy and grace because confession and repentance would be an exercise in futility if God didn't want that to happen, if God didn't want to be reconciled because reconciliation is impossible without both parties being in agreement. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, what we see is God's heart and desire for, for the world is that the world would be reconciled to him. He first loved us. He first called us. He first moved and descended and began this work of reconciliation, and we get to respond. That's why confession and repentance is even possible is because God's heart is reconciliation. God's heart is calling orphans, adopted sons and daughters, and calling them home. That's why it's possible. And so we don't focus on confession and repentance. We don't just do that to confess and repent. We do that. We do all of that because we desire that nothing would stand in the way of our fellowship with our Father, right? We love God so much, right, that when we stray, when we turn from him, we say, God, I'm so sorry. I don't want anything to hinder this union and communion and fellowship I have with you. So I repent, I confess, and please restore me. Like Psalm 51, we talked about the beginning of this year. Restore me, Lord, to the joy of my salvation, this perfect fellowship with you. And this is Daniel's heart. Daniel's heart is a desire for the reconciliation of God's people back to God. And that's what we see his prayer is next in, uh, in verse 16. And that's the, the fourth point is this, is that prayer is supplication. After all of these things we see, it takes Daniel 16 verses to actually finally make his request to God. Prayer supplication to you, God. Verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among uh, all who are around us. Now, therefore, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. For your own sake, O Lord, make your your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. 
Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh, my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Two things I want to hone in on here, and there's two things that frame Daniel's request, his, his supplication to God. One is he bases his request on the sheer undeserved mercy of God, not his own righteousness or the righteousness of God's people. Verse 18, it's not because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy, right? And I think there's two problems when we obsess about our holiness or lack thereof in prayer. The first problem is, is this, is one, when we obsess about whether we're holy or not, to, to enter the holy of holies in prayer. We avoid God in prayer because we're unworthy, right? No one's worthy, right? And some of us, we, we, we struggle with self-loathing and, and shame and self-hatred. Say, I'm not going to go to God in prayer because I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to even talk to him. He doesn't want to hear from me. He hates me. He's angry with me. So I'm just going to avoid God, and therefore, we don't have a prayer life. The other alternative is self-righteousness, where we think that we, get, we, we earn a seat at the table with God because of our righteousness. And so, therefore, we begin to bargain with God, and we begin to list all the ways that he owes us uh, you know, a myriad of answered prayers because we are so holy and so good. We call that self-righteousness. And both of those are very big dangers. But what we see here is Daniel doesn't list his resume. If anyone can list his resume, it is Daniel who for 80 years of his life has done the impossible. And from all that we know, going through the book of Daniel, he has remained remarkably faithful to God. It's mind-blowing. And, 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 and in a pagan world with, where it was all the, you know, all the odds were stacked against him, right? And yet he was faithful. And, and Daniel could have easily presented his resume to God and say, listen, even, at, even as a priestly intercessor before his people saying, I'm, I'm holy, I'm righteous, look at all the ways I've been faithful. Look at all the, the, the kings I've advised, all the, all the things I've boldly told them, all the things I've done for your kingdom in Babylon and, and, in, and in Persia and all these things. God, you need to answer your prayer because I'm righteous. And I'm like, Daniel does not do that at all. He says it's because of your great mercy. That is the only basis of my prayers. That's what he clearly articulates here. It's the sweet, undeserved mercy of God that is the basis of any prayer being heard and answered. And the second thing that frames Daniel's supplication here is his desire for God's glory and not his own. His prayers we see here, his prayers are kingdom-centered, not self-centered. He's not asking for a new Benz to roll around the streets in Persia. He's, he's asking for, for, for kingdom advancement work, for God's people to be restored in God's place. Verse 19, he says, Delay not for your name's sake, O Lord. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. It focuses on others, the good of others, and God's glory, right? And we see Jesus teach us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, right? He says, hallowed, this is how we're, we're supposed to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, not my own. Uh, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a kingdom perspective. And I think the problem why we struggle with prayer or we, we struggle with seeing prayers answered or seeing prayers answered the way we want is because we're not, we're not praying kingdom, king-centered and kingdom-centered prayers. We're, we just have self-centered prayers and we believe God. We've relegated God to a genie in the sky where, God, just give me whatever I want. That's what you're called to do. When in fact, that's that's not the way Jesus teaches us to pray. Yes, we can approach God as a, a good father, and he loves to lavish good gifts on his kids. But what's interesting here is I think a lot of the reasons our prayers don't get answered is because we forget that we're soldiers in battle, not on a cruise ship you know, needing another daiquiri to, to top off our, our day, right? So, for example, um, uh, in the fall of uh, you know, a couple months ago, 
my mom felt the Lord was telling her to start taking uh, uh, class, classes at this online ministry school. She really felt the Lord press this upon her. But listen, you know as well as I do, uh, education's expensive, right? And so she couldn't necessarily justify uh, uh, signing up for, for these classes. And so she, she goes before the Lord in prayer. And she says, Lord, I really feel like you're calling me to do this for the advancement of your kingdom. And uh, if so, would you provide the financial means for me to do this? I kid you not, within a week, she had someone come into her kitchen with $1,000, and that person says, the Lord himself told me to give this to you. I was planning to go to the bank and give this to you tomorrow, but I was hounded. I was absolutely hounded. I could not do anything. This was so, so uh, uh, almost a, not a, uh, yeah, maybe even oppressive, source, but I had to go to the bank immediately and come and give you this money. And listen, my mom wasn't asking for financial means to, to, to take an underwater basket weaving class just for the heck of it. She was, she was the, the prayer that God put on her heart was, I want to be a dangerous woman in the kingdom of God, and you've called me to, to hone certain gifts through this ministry school, so would you provide the way? And the Lord says, absolutely. If you want to advance my kingdom, here's $1,000. Boom, let's go. Let's charge into battle, right? And I think that's often the reason uh, our prayers, uh, uh, you know, Listen, if we were to do an audit of our prayer life, and I am guilty as charged, we need to do a helpful audit, a diagnostic test of what we're praying for and why we're praying, and align it in submission to, to of the far greater prayer request of God's glory spreading out across the face of the earth. And so one of the last things we see here is this, is God both hears and answers prayer because of his great love and affection for his children and often will answer beyond what his children could ever ask or imagine. Look at verses 20 through 23 with me. While, Daniel, while I, Daniel, was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. God had God heard his prayers. The very, at the beginning of his prayer, the Lord, word went out and the Lord heard his prayers. And I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. So here's a quick recap. Daniel is praying. God is listening. The angel Gabriel is sent again to Daniel. I think at this point, uh, Daniel and the angel Gabriel are like best buds. Uh, they're hanging out, having Bible studies, interpreting visions together. I think they got a secret handshake at this point, you know. I don't know, but I'm kind of jealous that like one of, uh, you know, one of the, 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 the best friends that Daniel had was the angel Gabriel himself. Pretty awesome, right? But listen what the, the, the message before he gives the, the 70 weeks vision to Daniel, the message the angel delivers to Daniel is this, is you are greatly loved. And I'll be quick here because we're running out of time. If you and I believe what God says about us, that in Christ Jesus we are greatly loved, that God the Father no longer calls us orphans or sinners, but redeemed sons and daughters, and he loves us and has affection for us. If we believe we are greatly loved, we will go to him in prayer. And if we don't believe we're greatly loved, we will run away from him in prayer because we'll be, we'll be crippled with shame and self-hatred and, and condemnation and say, God would never want to talk to me. God, God crushed his son on the cross to call you back to himself, to call you at his feet and say, come to me, my kids. 
You're no longer an orphan. You're no longer a sinner. I call you saints. I call you beloved sons and daughters. Come to me. Do you believe you are greatly loved? When we believe that we are beloved sons and daughters of, the, of our heavenly father, we will run to him as prayer. Run to him in prayer, right? As a kid runs to their daddy when he's coming home from work, right? That joy, that joy. Let's do that. Let's remember that. And then I'll wrap up with uh, this vision here that Daniel receives. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word, word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one uh, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. As end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Verse 27, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed and is poured out on the desolator. So listen, there is a whole litany of interpretations uh, of the 70 weeks interpretation. There's a lot of ways that we could go here, but primarily um, what were the, one of the interpretations that we hold to here on the 70 weeks vision is that primarily this foretold the coming of Jesus Christ and the completion of his sacrificial work. If we look at verse 24, if we look at verse 24, we learn of beautiful news, right? We learn that there's a coming a day when transgression will be finished, Sins will be brought to an end. Reconciliation will be made for iniquity. Everlasting righteousness will be established. Vision and prophecy will be sealed. And the most holy place will be anointed. And it's important for us to remember that this vision comes in the framework of, of Daniel crying out to, to God in prayer for the restoration of God's people in God's place. And it's, it's almost as if the Lord answers Daniel saying, hey, I know, Daniel, that you are praying for a mere geographical return of the people of God to the city of God, right? That's your primary, like, hey, please return us back to, back to Jerusalem at this time in history, just a mere geographical return. But listen, Daniel, there is a coming, there's coming a day when the crucified Messiah will fully and finally restore my people back to me to dwell with me in perfect peace in my holy city for all of eternity. And why is this possible? Because I'm the God who is able to do far more abundantly than my people could ever ask or ever Imagine, Daniel, you wanted a geographical return. Well, how about a cosmic return where all creation through my son is reconciled back to me? Because I'm the God who can do abundantly more than, than we could ever ask, dare ask, or imagine. So Transit Church, I'm going to conclude with Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. And I want to just leave us here completely blown away at the lengths that Jesus Christ has gone to make prayer a reality for us. Look at Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence, watch that, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Listen, we have confidence to enter one of the most dangerous places in the world for a sinner to enter into the presence of the living God, the holy of holies. Because of who Jesus is, we have confidence now. We have confidence now to enter that by the blood of Jesus, by the, way, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, watch verse 22. This is beautiful. Watch verse 22. Let us draw near. Oh, church, he's calling us home. 
This morning, my hope and my prayer with this sermon is that you would hear and answer yes, that you would draw to God who's drawn near to you in Christ Jesus, and you would return and draw near to him, right? Would we listen to verse 22, let us draw near. Let us draw near. What in the world would hold us back from a God this good to us, church? What in the world would hold us back? He is so good to us. He is drawn so close to us in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ died. He died to make prayer possible for us, church. And so let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Church, Jesus Christ has given us access to the most dangerous place for a sinner to ever dare step, and that's the Holy of Holies. But what Hebrews 10 teaches us is that we can draw near to God as bold as a kid running to their dad when he comes home from work because we don't enter the Holy of Holies anymore as as sinners, but as redeemed sons and daughters who've been washed and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. It's his righteousness. It's his mercy. It's his grace. It's his love that makes prayer possible. And we simply cling, cling in hope to to the precious blood of Jesus. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. That's who gets us at the feet of our king. And that's who gets us uh, into perfect fellowship with God. The work that Christ came to do was reconciling us back to God. And so, Transit Church, the application for today is this, is do not pursue prayer. Pursue the one, our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, who died, who died to make prayer possible for us. Let us not walk, let us not crawl, let us run full sprint into his arms, in the arms of a good father. There is no more curtain anymore separating us. The, court, the curtain has been torn in half. We have access. We have access. And so let us run to him in prayer, and we'll do that now. Heavenly Father, what a good God you are. Gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, Your mercies are new every morning, Lord Jesus. We do not deserve the grace you lavish upon us. We do not deserve the gift of prayer, of you listening to us, of you hearing us. What? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, you want to hear from us. You delight in hearing from us. You love us. You first called us so we can call upon you. You've drawn near to us so that we can draw near to you. What an amazing God we serve. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for your grace and for the confidence and for the assurance you give us that, hey, you're covered. Your debt has been paid in full. You don't have to keep sacrificing and and, and trying to 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 muster up enough holiness to pursue me. The work is finished on the cross. Jesus cries out and he says, it is finished. And then the veil rips from floor to ceiling. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus. And so, Father, I just pray for any of those who are logging in and are watching this who do not know the sweetness, the everlasting joy it is to know you, to truly know you, that Holy Spirit, you'd come upon them now and reveal your son Jesus to them and reveal your love to them. Help them to finally see, help them to finally see the height and the length and the depths that you've gone, you've gone to call them to yourself, that you've gone to draw them near to you. And so would they see your love and would we respond? Would your church respond?
with a full-on pursuit, running after, seeking after you. Why? Because there's nowhere better to go. There's nowhere better to go. You, Jesus, have the words of everlasting life. Why in the world, why in the world would we turn anywhere else? Why in the world would we earnestly seek after everything else that is sinking sand when Christ, you have placed us on the firm foundation of who you are and what you've done for us? And so thank you, Jesus. May you be glorified and magnified in our hearts and in our lives as we pursue you, pursue the one who first pursued us, the one who died to make prayer possible for us. So we come before you grateful and entering your courts with praise and thanksgiving for you are worthy of all honor and glory and praise today. And we love you and we pray all this in your precious and holy name, Jesus. Amen.